Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 12 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in today's episode, or this week's episode, or I'm not sure, sometimes it's we do it every week, sometimes we skip a week. Last week we skipped a week because I had a headache on uh, Monday evening, which is when we typically record, and we, uh, we had to skip last week, uh, my fault. Uh, but uh, typically it's uh, weekly, I guess. So on this week's episode, uh, episode 12, we have some listener feedback from Alex from Central District and a question uh, from Alex from Central District, which is uh, very thought-provoking and kind of ties into a topic, a rule topic that we've been talking about on and off the past several episodes. And so it'll, it'll be uh, kind of nice to uh, get a, a different point of view Although it doesn't sound all that terrifically different, it sounds like a lot of us are in agreement over this one, um, which kind of lends itself to, I guess, a boring podcast. We should find more people who disagree with us. Um, that would be helpful. Anyway, uh, and then we also want to talk a little bit about Great West Invitational Updates for 2018. Uh, Scott had a great practice. Uh, let's see, it wasn't just this last weekend. It was the weekend before last. So some very cool things coming out of there. Uh, talking about some individual quizzing uh, strategies in terms of both from a quizzer uh, and from a coach uh, working with quizzers to develop individual quizzing. We want to talk a little bit about uh, chapter reference versus chapter verse reference questions. And if we have time, which we probably won't, uh, because we will wax eloquent on something. But if we do have time, we might, may want to uh, dive in a little bit to talking about what are some better versus less good options when it comes to quiz equipment configurations. So with that said, let's dive into the feedback first and then the question, uh, both from Alex. So the feedback, uh, Alex writes as follows. Love hearing you every week. Love that you love hearing us every week. Uh, my biggest criticism is that I can I can't actively talk back to you while the uh, about the issues you discuss. I do a, a lot of talking to the air while I listen uh, anyway. Uh, and I also Alex, I'll let you know that I do a lot of talking to the air too. Um, just not necessarily during the recording of the podcast, but certainly uh, outside of recording the podcast, I'm talking to the air quite a lot. So I think that's totally fine. But of course, this is encouraging me to, and I, and Scott too, to consider the idea of, uh, I think we should totally do a live show at some quiz meet at some point in the future. I don't know. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I would love to do that. And I, I had another thought. I, I started messaging Alex to say, I can start a, a group chat with you while we're recording. And then I realized that she wouldn't be able to hear the live recording. So that would be kind of pointless. Um, but I wonder, I mean... Could we logistically pull it off to have multiple callers into the, the Skype recording, but they're all on mute? That's possible. <laughs> that would be very interesting. I mean, we could probably do that. So, I mean, the way Scott and I record this thing is we, we connect up on Skype and then we, uh, uh, we, we just talk to each other and, and I'm recording both my input and his input. And then I do some post-processing, uh, to make us sound a little bit better. Uh, but yeah, we could, we could probably do some sort of live record. That uh, that way we could also switch over to like a, maybe a Google Hangout and have like a I'm not sure how that would work, but I'm sure there's got to be a way to make this happen. Uh, it would be kind of fun to do like a live call in episode, too, but I'd have to dig a little bit into the technology to figure out how to do that. But I think it would be a lot of fun. I mean, certainly it would be great in the Pacific Northwest to uh, put together 
a uh, a live show uh, during like a scramble meet or something like that. I think the the problem with with a live show with an audience is is just finding the right venue for it. I mean, at the scramble meet, we might have a little bit of time to be able to do that, but at a at a typical meet, we're so compressed for time, it'll be very difficult. So I'm mean, I'm thinking like you know uh, you're you're heading off to Great West. Um, I unfortunately have to miss Great West uh, this year. Uh, but, uh, it, I mean, it'd be, it'd be fun to do a show at Great West, but then of course the problem is when on earth do you find the time to be able to actually record? So Griffin, I think you and I just have to find, um, three to six more quiz masters and you and I can just take breaks during the quiz meet then. That is true. That is a very worthy and primary objective to finding additional quiz masters. I am working on it. I've, I've recruited Two more in the Pacific Northwest uh, district. I'm still working on a third, and she know who she, she knows who she is, and I know she listens to the podcast on, from time to time. So if you are that third person and you are listening, please let me know if you want to be a quiz master. Um, so that would be three, which would be awesome. Uh, but it, by the way, if anybody in the Pacific Northwest uh, district is interested in becoming a quiz master, even if you have no experience uh, in this regard, uh, please email us, email the show uh, at iq at cbqz.org. We would love to hear from you because we're putting together uh, a training program for incoming quiz masters. And the goal and the hope is to actually create a pool of quiz masters who can trade off with each other so that we don't necessarily always have to go to every single meet, although a lot of us will anyway. Uh, but then the, the great uh, value to it also is that a, a single quiz master in a single room doesn't have to necessarily stay there the entire meet. You can take breaks and so forth. So we're trying to hope, uh, hopefully put that together for next year. I think that would be fantastic. Definitely. Well, let's move on a little bit to the listener question, again from Alex from Central District, and she writes as follows. With the new rule that prevents positive and negative uh, constructions of multiple answers, what's your take on, quote, not only, but also, unquote, phrasing? Uh, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 21, could a multiple answer be written that reads, for we are uh, taking pains to do what is right, how, or maybe do what is right, how, or maybe in Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, this service that you perform is what? I would tend to lean towards writing at least some of these that make sense, because Paul is describing two effects of the same quality. The two items are not contradictory. Uh, so, Scott, what are your thoughts? So I definitely would consider that the not only but also structure or construction to be valid for a multiple answer. Even though the word not exists, I would totally agree that it's... Um, how did Alex put it? Um, two effects of the same quality, and they're not contradictory. So I think that makes uh, a ton of sense. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's sort of uh, going back to the not multiple answer rule uh, that we have uh, we've been talking about a little bit. And Scott is is not a fan of this rule. I am not a fan of this rule. I know there are others in the, the Pacific Northwest District who are um, borderline violently against this rule. <laughs> Um, I guess is, is a, 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 you know, uh, not all the way towards violence, but certainly very, uh, very negative towards this role. It'll be interesting to see this. This is sort of an example of uh, maybe an unintended consequence of this rule. Yeah. And I think I can understand the reasoning for um, why the rule was written in the first place, that your general like positive, negative, multiple answers, where it looks like the question is asking for two things, and then the answer is one thing that is not and one thing that is, and how that can be a little bit confusing on how it's a multiple answer. 
the problem arises when um, you try to write this into the rule book because, I mean, going back to one thing I remember when I write rule when I try to write rules is unique cases make terrible law. And I think this would be a, a generally unique case and um, generally unique is not the term I wanted to use, but it's, it's, it's a unique case. Um, and when you're writing in the rule book, you don't want to say explicitly positive, negative, multiple answers are invalid. And so it got written as, you know, any question where the question is not answered is invalid. And so it ends up being extended um, beyond multiple answers to, interrogatives. And um, what I think is the most problematic area is to reference questions. Because if a quizzer is having to provide a question, they could theoretically provide you a question that is valid in all of the ways except for this one. Um, And they would do that by not including the not um, in the phrase in their question. And to me, that would be beyond a technicality to have to count a quizzer wrong in that situation. And so I think um, the way that the rule got written um, ended up having unforeseen negative consequences um, that were not intended from the get-go. And another conversation I was having recently is um, there seems to be almost degrees of degrees to which the question is not answered. You would think that it's either not or it is, and that's clear. But, you know, there's a question, I pass judgment on who from next year, and the answer is no one. Well, that's not not, but it is no one or quote-unquote negative. And I, I think this would fall under the, the question is not answered, so this question would be un, invalid to write. Well, later there's a question, who acts in secret? And the answer is, no one who wants to become a public figure. Well, the real part of this answer is still no one. And so I think that that would, like, if I'm using the same logic that I just used, then this question is not answered as well. But I would actually write this question, because I think there's a lot more information that somehow reduces the extent to which the question is not answered. Um, and so I ended up kind of codifying this all with an inequality or an inequality where no or not is like very clear the question is not answered. But then there's none or no one, um, which are less clear. And then there's also no one with a relative clause, which is even less clear. And then there's this situation that Alex brought up, not only but also, that might even be further less clear. Um, and so I think this is where you get you run into problems where you're having to decide the degree to which the question is not answered to decide whether a written question is valid or invalid, which becomes pretty problematic. Yeah, and I mean, I totally agree. And it seems like really the the core goal here is to prevent uh, really confusing or awkward questions. And so it seems to me like there should be some sort of trust of the question writer uh, to follow the basic rule of don't write questions that are confusing or misleading uh, or, or bizarro uh, sounding to, you know, quizzers who are, uh, who are answering them. Yep. I think, I think, I think that is really the, the desire and the hope, right? So the desire is to not have confusing questions and the hope is that question writers just write uh, questions that aren't confusing and they don't need rules to make it so. And I think you're kind of helping me crystallize a big vision or a, a thought about the rule book is a lot of times we end up writing rules to combat bad question writing or bad officiating, um, which is maybe not the optimal way to write a rule book. Um, like, which are there rules in baseball to combat poor umpiring? Or um, And so... It's a tough situation where it's like how – to what extent do you just tr- hope or trust um, that officials and question writers put f- put forth their best foot and do um, a really good job? And at what point do you put structures and rules and language in place 
to make it invalid for them to do a bad job, um, which can help in some ways and hurt in other ways. Yeah, and the, I mean, going back to an earlier point you made too, in any kind of rule that we might be considering for inclusion in a rule book, I think there needs to be an evaluation of certainly – well, in a, uh, an evaluation of the positive versus the, the negative, what, what value do, do you get out of it versus the cost? And the cost is difficult to measure because, you know, there's that, the law of un, unintended consequences. Uh, you don't necessarily know the cost or the entire cost of a rule when you propose it. It sounds like a good idea. So how do you actually measure the entire cost? And so in that way, it sort of leans me towards thinking there needs to be kind of a strong bias against very specific rules and much and more a tendency towards general very very clear black and black and white rules uh but of course the more general you get the 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 greater a chance you have of following follow following it following falling into the subjectivity trap and of course i'm very much against the idea of anything subjective i mean I, there 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 has to be there there are situations where you have to write subjective rules and you have to leave it up to discretion in the moment uh but generally speaking as a quiz master i thoroughly enjoy things that are much more black and white. Uh, it kind of gets me off the hook uh, uh, in, in a lot of tough cases. But I think part of my job as a quiz master is adjudic adjudicating tough cases that are not so black and white. Yep. I think it is a tough thing to write, to write rules like this. I think the recent language added about reference questions kind of falls into the same category of being overly specific and causing unintended things. Because um, if you're requiring the determining reference word or phrase... Now the quiz master is left to decide what that is. You know, if my question is, I, I hope that what, and the quizzer says, I hope what, well, um, is that part of the determining reference word or phrase or not? Um, and then you have to decide on this, um, which complicates things. And I think it kind of, it's, it's adding to the stigma of reference questions being difficult or, um, contentious, <laughs> yeah. um, to talk about. I think you see a similar thing in football with the catch rule, where every year there's additional language um, written to hopefully clarify or make the definition of a catch more objective. And things got worse and worse until in this last offseason, the language was almost like a lot of it was removed. And it's a lot more of a plain text, human to human description of what a catch is. And I'm wondering if we're going to see a similar type of shift in reference questions sometime down the road. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I feel proud of myself for actually understanding the football reference. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, not, I'm not really a sports guy, so, uh, uh, well, certainly not a typical sports guy, so, but I actually know what you're talking about. It's interesting the approach that they took. I think we can think about that approach in terms of quizzing and if it would be a good or a bad approach, but there have been two to four very controversial rulings about um, a catch or not a catch in very high-profile football games in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And the rules committee looked at those situations and kind of asked themselves, do we want the situation to be a catch or to not be a catch? And then attempted to write wording that would make the outcome how they wanted it to be, which is a little bit interesting because it, it almost feels like they're being too prescriptive of the outcome that they want rather than starting from some fundamental principle. But it actually might have turned out okay. Yeah, because I mean, in a way, I think that approach is reasonable because you're basically saying we trust that we 
conceptually understand what a catch is. It's sort of like, what is art? Well, I'll, I'll know it when I see it. What's a catch? Well, I'll know a catch when I see it, but that's not good enough. You need to give the official something much more objective. And so by looking at examples and then sort of reverse engineering those into a set of uh, you know, yeses and nos, then you can then say, okay, great, we're going to actually build a rule that gets the outcome as close to what we believe is the right rulings for these use cases, or no, not, not use cases, but actual uh, data points. Um, and that's a, a pretty reasonable way to go about it. In fact, I mean, that, that's essentially the way, one way in which artificial intelligence gets trained. Uh, you're, you're providing it with a series of, of outcomes and saying, okay, these are the outcomes I want you to say are yes, and these are the outcomes I want you to say no. Now you, the artificial intelligence, go figure out a rule or set of rules that ends up resulting in those outcomes. Hmm. That does make a lot of sense. Um, but of course, in those cases, uh, the, the, the negatives of the artificial intelligence, uh, feedback loop like that or, or, uh, back engineering or, or back learning, uh, is that you can sometimes over engineer to the outcomes. And so the, there are still going to be edge cases that don't necessarily 100% align with what you want the outcome to be, but you do get, you know, a good 99% solution very quick. Yeah. I think it's a difficult thing to write a rule book that is used both at a district level and at an out-of-district level by many different districts around the United States and Canada. So I think it's a it's a difficult thing, but I'm glad that there's uh, a large group of people collaborating to write rules and that there's a lot of um, opportunity for feedback for the rules. Yeah. Well, I mean, this reminds me of a conversation I, uh, you and I had a week or two ago about the idea of having uh maybe two different rule books or or rather a core rule book that would be sort of considered the uh the template for a district rule book and then of course districts are free to append you know addendums or appendices or whatever uh, append appendices i guess that's somewhat redundant redundant but anyway uh you know dis uh, districts would have the discretion to do that but this would be sort of like a baseline for district level quizzing and then there would be an addendum and an appendix specifically for things like great west or for uh internationals or sort of these uh meets that are at a higher level than say district level quizzing where you know you may want to have certain rules not take effect at a district level, but then take effect at a uh, international or Great West level. Totally. And I think key verses are one of the best examples because the goal or the intent of key verse questions at a district level compared to an international's level, I think are as different as you can get among any question type. And so it's really tough to not, not legislate, but define what constitutes a key verse question or a good key verse question between district and internationals, it's hard to do that in one fell swoop. Right. There's also the question of whether or not you're going to require questions for reference questions, um, you know, where, you know, we've always required, uh, at least for uh, chapter verse reference, we've always required the question, uh, even at a district level. But if you if you're starting a, a, a district from scratch, if there's a small number of, of, of churches in a young district, uh, requiring the question may not be all that important. It may be a non-factor if you're reading off the entire question a lot of the time. Uh, and if somebody jumps in the rare uh, situation where the question isn't fully finished, 
Uh, in a district like that, maybe asking for the question is a little bit too onerous or confusing. It can be a little bit dissuasive uh, towards uh, memorization for people if if they sort of feel like they're they're falling into gotcha situations. That can be sort of negative towards those younger programs. But I also remember, you know, in in the P and W district uh, a few years back, we had very strong reference uh, quizzers, reference jumpers. And if we had gone the way of not requiring the question on reference questions in our district at that time, uh, I think it, the reference questions would have been something of a madhouse. They would have been. All of this talk about different rule books reminds me of, I think it was my wife who had the idea of um, whenever we're talking about rules, we're talking about them in the context of knowing what the current rule book is and how we've interacted with it um, and what meets look like. What if we were to find people who didn't know anything about Bible quizzing, merely hand them the rule book and ask them to construct a meet, and it might highlight a lot of the ridiculousness in our rule book or the language that might be too assumed or too implied, um, and someone fresh could highlight that. I think that is an incredibly good idea. Um, I'm remembering the very first time that I got into quizzing, I attended a few, uh, I was sort of like, a, I got drafted in as a, as an assistant coach and, uh, you know, I was helping out in practices and so forth and it seemed kind of interesting, but, and I read the rule book several times, really didn't get it. It, it you know, despite the fact I, you know, I was trying really hard to understand it, you know, attending practices, participating, helping, helping to ask questions from time to time, still never really got it until I went to the first meet and saw it and then was kind of like, oh, now I get it. There was just sort of this, this light bulb moment. And I think, I think you're right. The, the, the rule book is definitely written, you know, from an inside quizzing, uh, perspective. Uh, and <laughs> I think that can be, that can be problematic. Absolutely. Cause I mean, I think I'm guilty of extreme myopia, you know, like I don't know what I'm assuming or what ways my mind is constricted when I'm thinking about rules or how to change them or what I don't like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so you had a Great West Invitational uh, practice not that long ago, right? Yeah, we had a great practice. Um, we had 17 of the 20 Great West quizzers there and 11 of the 12 Great West rookies. So we have 12 Great West rookies, Griffin, which is awesome. I'm glad to have all of them coming. Yeah, it's um, fantastic. Some of those rookies are are phenomenal. They are. And I really pushed everyone to win at least two jumps during the practice. We had, oh, nine. No, I think we did run 10 quizzes, right at 10 quizzes. And usually at every Great West practice, there's a couple quizzers that don't win any jumps. And so I really pushed them to win at least two jumps because to do so, they would have to pick a syllable speed to jump at and not jump on recognition, which a lot of them are able to do during the year. Um, and we got... 16 of the 17 won at least two jumps, and the 17th won one jump. So everyone won a jump, and almost everyone won two, which was the goal. So I was I was happy, because you could see a lot of their faces when I was talking to them about jumping on a syllable count, and they were like, oh my goodness, you know, it was such a, a mind shift. But um, yeah, I think they did really good. That's fantastic. And the, there's an update on the format of the meet. Canadian Midwest is bringing just three teams. They're not bringing five teams. Um, so we have 13 total teams, and because of that, um, Western Canada made the very savvy decision to kind of redo everything. So I believe each of the 13 teams has five prelims. Um, I can't remember if we normally have five or six. But then, after prelims, we're not having XYZs, and there's also no consolation round, because they didn't want four teams to have consolations among themselves. 
And so they have kind of crafted a, a double or triple elimination bracket where the, the 13 teams will be seated after um, preliminaries. But then you all they all have a chance to quiz, I think, a minimum of two times after prelims as a team and then work towards uh, the team championship quiz. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's really smart. Yeah, I really love that solution. When I saw that there was only going to be 13 teams, my initial thought was, can we kind of scrap consolations? And then I kept reading the email, and I saw that's exactly what they decided to do. Very cool. Very cool. So you guys head out uh, in just a handful of days, right, this Thursday? Yeah. And actually, I forgot one bit. I believe they are counting averages all the way through. Um, All the way even, even through championships? Probably not through championships, but all the way okay. up into championships. So maybe you could argue that because the teams are being seeded after preliminaries that some quizzers might have an easier time. At, but I think all 13 are going to be pretty much quizzing together for the whole meet. And so the differences in competition level for one or two quizzes out of eight aren't really going to have a huge impact, especially when the top quizzer is probably going to average a 40, you know? Right, yeah. So, um, but yeah, we head out Thursday. We're get, let's see, we're going to have 29 in our caravan um, with 24 of them leaving from Covington and five of them leaving from Oregon. And then all 29 are going to convene in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Thursday evening, with along with three spectators. And we're going to have good fun at our hotel and then head on Friday across the border and get to the camp and start quizzing Friday after dinner. That's totally awesome. That's totally awesome. And I mean, the weather is going to be a little bit on the rainy side as you're departing. What's the weather going to be like when you're actually in Canada? Um, possibly snow. So we're hoping Ooh. for not any of that since we're going <laughs> partway up a mountain pass. Um, but there was some snow in the forecast. Um, middle of the day highs in the 30s at the camp. Ooh. Well, yeah, I mean... Not that I'm wishing snow for you, but uh, the camp is right next to a very big, very gorgeous lake. Uh, so if you get a little bit of snow uh, at the elevation where you're at, it actually could be extremely pretty, uh, say, Saturday morning. Yeah, we definitely got a few inches of snow Saturday night last year. Um, and so all of the drivers woke up a little bit panicked to see snow everywhere. But it was pretty simple to go slow down the mountain um, and it wasn't currently snowing, so visibility was fine. And then, you know, 10 minutes of driving later, the roads were completely clear. And so it, it worked out just fine. And I'm hoping for something similar this year. Nice. Very nice. Well, let's move on to talk a little bit about individual quizzing. Um, Scott, what are your, you had written this in as a topic for us to discuss. So why don't you kick this one off? So I'm, t- I'm going to talk about forming and executing on a consistent strategy for individual quizzing. And I'm going to start from the internationals and Great West perspective and kind of move backwards to the district. But I have kind of this working theory that at a meet, every quizzer has a certain number of units of energy to use. So at internationals over four days, maybe each quizzer has 50 units of energy to use. And I think at, at internationals, the energy required to um, focus on a question, jump at the precise speed you want to, um, while probably watching for a W for the quiz master and watching their mouth shape to get the next syllable and the cadence. And then within 30 seconds, answering correctly um, and in a way that leaves no doubt. I think all of that could use maybe even one of your units of energy. And so if you only have 50, um, it's not good to use 
a tenth of a unit of energy on every single question because the chances that using a tenth of a unit of energy, um, the chances that that will get you a correct question is low. And so um, it makes more sense to use a high amount of energy on a smaller number of questions, which means um, you have to be really, really well prepared for those questions. And you're probably going to focus on a single or maybe only two question types. Do you have any thoughts on what I've said so far? That's a very interesting theory. I mean, energy is a renewable uh, resource, though, right? So, I mean, if, you, if you're able to relax between quizzes, uh, if you're able to get some food or some, you know, water or something like that, I mean, you can start to, you know, recoup some of your lost energy, right? You can, but I remember a district meet, I think it was the fifth district meet, and I was in eighth um, for the year trying to move my way up to fifth, and I ex- – expended yeah expended a ton of energy that meet and i went home after the meet on saturday i got in bed at i think five o'clock and i woke up at noon the next day (laughs) so i I slept for 19 straight hours and like i had a normal night's sleep on that friday night and yet i slept probably double what i normally slept and so there was some amount of energy debt that my body had to build back up and now definitely kids that eat healthy and get a good night's sleep and stay hydrated are going to be able to either maintain or replenish their energy relative to everybody else. But one thing that I ended up doing at internationals was I had my question types that I focused on. And if I heard a question type that was not my type, I almost completely zoned out. It was almost like a, you know, for, for that 60 seconds, I got to refresh my brain and not um, expend any energy. And I think that really helped me um, be able to expend peak energy on the questions that I did want to try to get. Yeah, it's a very interesting theory. And so I think it's not as important because at a district level, you know, if you have to expend one unit of energy to get a correct question internationals, maybe you have to expend a quarter of a unit or a tenth of a unit at the district level. And so um, working to focus on specific question types and um, conserve energy is less important. The other The other component of my theory here is, I think the quizzers that get questions at internationals consistently are um, – they're among the best five prepared for that question type at the whole meet. I, you know, and maybe it's the, the best three or the best seven. But in general, I think there's a very select group for each question type um, that consistently get correct questions. And so if you agree with that, it means if you want to consistently get correct questions, you have to be among the best prepared um, at a given question type. Uh, and so uh, to do that, you have to put a ton of preparation in. And so I think almost this isn't really about energy, but it's there's kind of a limit that a teenager is going to spend on studying for Bible quizzing during a summer. Um, and I don't think it's very smart to spread your studying around all the question types and then be in the top half of every single question type because you may get no questions correct, even if um, – under some different competition structure, you would, you know, score in the top half. But I think at internationals, if you are kind of at the 50th percentile of every question type, you might get none. Because I think the majority of points are gotten by the top, you know, tiny percent of quizzers. And so if, if you're working under the knowledge that you have to be under, in the top five or seven or three at a question type to get questions at internationals, um, and you're not going to spend 80 hours a week studying – then um, you have to pick and choose and be judicious with where you spend your studying time and really localize it to a a single question type or a few different question types. And the way that I'm bringing that back to the district is oftentimes I see quizzers 
um, jump on question types that maybe aren't their favorite or they're not super prepared on, and they'll err on them. Where I, th- I think that's an inefficient way to go or a suboptimal way to quiz strategically. Um, it makes most sense if you are extremely well prepared on a limited set of questions, ideally to the point where you are the best prepared at that question type. And then you just get all those right because you can jump faster than everyone else and still get them right. Um, and then you're done. And you don't have to wade into the um, probability waters where some percentage of the time you will get a question wrong just by luck. And I think another driving factor is my goal is to get a 90 at every single district. And to get a 90, I wanted to eliminate any component of luck from my quizzing. And so when I started thinking about Kiever's questions, well, to, to win jumps and finish the verses, I'm going to have to jump, you know, probably three syllables. Well, I know that 10 to 15 percent aren't um, 100 percent sure to be right at three syllables. So I don't want to jump on that type. Well, let's talk about interrogative questions. Well, I know there's some quizzers that like to jump really fast in interrogative questions. So if I'm in a quiz with them, they might jump really fast. And even if they err, they limit my ability um, to win jumps at a pace that I want to win them at. And so I kind of went back and forth and I settled on reference questions because I thought I could prepare to the level where I could jump faster than anyone else was willing to jump while still removing the most amount of reliance on luck of me getting the question right. And I think that sort of strategy can benefit quizzers well, and it can almost reduce their cognitive expense when they're quizzing. Where, you know, every time you hear multiple answer, okay, so you have to remember your list or um, other aspects of multiple answers before you jump. If um, then you hear chapter reference, you have to okay, chapter reference, wait for the chapter number, then start working. If you hear finish the verse, you have to know, oh, there's six that start with therefore, so which am I, which one am I going to pick when I jump? You have all these specific mental hoops you have to jump through for each question type where I had my question types. And if I heard interrogative, I didn't have any thinking to. I just stopped thinking and sat. Um, And I think it really helped me expend a lot of energy and focus on the questions that I did want to. And I mostly did well on them. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, from my perspective, you know, when it comes to individual quizzing and uh, so my experience is a little bit different than Scott. I know you've done, you know, quite a bit of of coaching uh, before as well, but I have only done coaching before, uh, before Quiz Mastery. Uh, I was never a quizzer myself. So from a coaching perspective, I have some advice, I think. Uh, I don't, well, I don't know if I would call it advice. That's too strong of a word. I, I have some thoughts to share, which may or may not be true. But they are theoretically true based on my experience. So your experience as a coach might be different. Um, so, you know, take it for whatever it's worth. Um, maybe that's zero. Maybe that's more. But one of the things that I noticed was that you have to be very careful with quizzers if you encourage them to set goals. Um, I think goal setting can be a useful device, but it can also have some negative consequences as well, which sounds a bit weird, but I'll, I'll give you an illustration. This is something that I that I had a, a little bit of a disagreement with a couple of my quizzers, and ultimately they came around and agreed with me later, which of course made me feel really, really great um, because, you know, all those kind of silly reasons. But the, 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 the argument was sort of like this. Setting a goal is a good idea, and I should set a goal that is fairly achievable and then after I achieve that goal, I should set another goal uh, that is just a little bit more, but is achievable. And 
I sort of argued against that at first, and then I continued to argue against it, but from a different point of view. Um, the problem with setting a goal that is fairly achievable is that the tendency is that you'll stop once you hit that goal. Um, that's sort of this weird human thing, like like this idea of saying, well, if I'm going to memorize whatever number it happens to be, if I'm going to memorize five verses a chapter, something really small, right? I think everybody can can memorize more than that. I, I'm 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 convinced pretty much everybody can memorize more than five verses a chapter. But let's say you set a goal, like I'm going to memorize five verses in this particular chapter, and you work at it, and you get to five, and you're like, great, I'm I'm good, I'm going to stop. Right. Or maybe I'll take a break and I will, you know, get a glass of water or, you know, go for a bike ride or I'm going to do something else. If you set a goal of, say, 15. Right. And and I'm I'm trying to pick a decent number because I've, I've seen, you know, even people who are just getting into quizzing, uh, I've seen them be able to memorize, you know, 10 verses in a chapter in, you know, a couple of hours. It's it's and 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 be able to go back on that material and retain it uh purely by memory it is possible to do uh and and i, I say that for you know the the folks who haven't tried memorizing uh before uh certainly folks who try to memorize the entire chapter or much larger amounts of material realize that you know when when Griffin is sitting there going, oh, you know, think about 10 or 15 verses a chapter, they're thinking, wow, that's an incredibly small uh, number of verses. Yes, 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 I understand. But anyway, it's, these are just sort of arbitrary numbers. Let's say you make a goal to memorize 15 and you try really hard, but you're, you know, let's say you're a rookie, maybe memorization is difficult for you, you haven't worked out uh, some strategies that work for you uh, yet for getting those verses into memory, uh, uh, you know, long term, and you're working through this, and you only get up to about seven, right? I would argue that you did two more than you would have if your goal was five. And I'm not suggesting that you should have ridiculous goals, right? Don't don't start with I'm going to memorize a hundred verses per chapter. Of course, that would be virtually impossible, you know, almost all the time. But uh, don't start with a goal that is. Uh, so far out there that it is, it's going to be demotivating. You want to basically set a goal that is just a little bit beyond where you think you're capable of going. And this is what come, kind of comes back to this notion of why I think there, it's important to have a coach who sets goals with you. Because I think for the coach, the coach should be thinking in terms of systems, not goals. And then the quizzers can be reacting based on what those goals happen to be. So, for example, if a quizzer, if a quizzer and a coach work together and they say, okay, what's your goal for this week? I'm going to memorize, uh, you know, 10 verses. And the quizzer comes back and memorizes seven. And it's like, okay, great. They, the, then let's set maybe, uh, 11 for next week or something like that, or maybe stick with 10 or whatever. And then they come back and they say, oh, great. I got, I got 11 verses. Okay, great. We're going to push it and add it to, to 15 or something like that. You want the coach to be thinking systematically from week to week around setting what these goals are. And you want the quizzers to always have a goal that is just a little bit beyond what they think they're capable of doing. Because I believe with practice and with effort and consistency, I think is the biggest thing of all, with consistent practice, I think the quizzers will attain something that is a little bit beyond what they think they can attain. Uh, and they're always sort of be driving for more and more and more in that direction. But if you're saying, okay, well, my goal is 10 verses per chapter per week, and you start to get pretty good at that, 
the there's a almost this weird not demotivating aspect of of getting to verse 11 but there's almost like a loss of energy uh it's sort of like uh, when once you get to 10 that 11th verse is tremendously more difficult than the 9th or the 10th verse and in fact the 9th verse is probably easier than the 11th verse uh, and it's probably easier than the eighth verse because you're getting closer to your goal. So you want to set those goals just, I think, a little bit beyond. And so that's where I think, you know, as a coach, be working with your quizzers in that regard to always kind of figure out where they are, figure out their potential, and then encourage them to go just a little bit beyond that uh, potential. There are some coaches in the Pacific Northwest District that I have noticed they do this with incredible skill. They are incredibly positively motivating and supporting for their quizzers and encouraging for their quizzers in all aspects, whether they succeed or, or don't succeed in any particular, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, quiz or particular uh, question or anything. They're very supportive of their quizzers, but they're always pushing their quizzers go just a little bit more, that one or 2% beyond what you think you can. And what I've seen is their quizzers tend to be some of the best quizzers. And especially from a rookie perspective too, right? You can see like a lot of quizzers who've been in for a few years can sort of pick things up and work on their own independent of coaching. But when you see rookies come in who are doing incredibly well, that's a, certainly it's a testament to the effort uh, that the quizzers is is putting forth because it, it, without quizzer effort you you get nothing. But I think a lot of the credit, uh, a good percentage of the credit, not greater than fifty percent, but some percentage of credit goes to the coaches who are helping that quizzer uh, push and push and push. I don't know, Scott. Those are sort of my rambling thoughts. What do you think? I think those are great thoughts, and you've um, brought up or inspired a million thoughts within me um, because the area of Goals versus process or systems or results, motivation um, are things I like to um, continually read about from an academic perspective because I'm just I just have a nerdy interest in all of these sorts of things. And when you first started talking about how goals are not usually a good idea, I was like, oh my goodness! In all my coaching, I pushed for goals above almost anything else. Um, but as I thought more about it, I really pushed for goals for myself. Because I wanted to know the extent to which I could push a quizzer or um, what what they wanted to do. Because if if coaching has taught me anything, it's you can't make a kid do you can't make a kid study. You just can't. Um, and so I wanted to know like what were what was the the guiding vision or the goal of the quizzer, and I would help them get to that. But if they said like my goal is to average a sixty, I would say now you know that's a start, but um, you averaging a 60 is not entirely under your control. Um, there are lots of things that other quizzers and teams can do that can make it super hard or super easier for you to get that 60. So let's bring it back. Think about to get a 60, how many jumps do you think you have to win a quiz? And um, how much do you have to study to get an accuracy where winning that many jumps a quiz will get you a 60? And start bringing it back to, okay, well, how, how much of the material do you think you should memorize? How often do you think you should review it? And kind of get back to really the process or the systems part of, of, of study, um, but knowing what that goal is to help me decide um, what sort of process systems to put in place for them. I agree that setting goals that are both reasonable but ambitious are, is the best way to go about it. Um, I think that in anything academic, humans are pushed the best and learn the best when you are stretched just a little bit beyond what you can do now. Um, I do think that there are places, and maybe 
there are places for something called a BHAG, which is a, a bold, hairy, audacious goal. It may not be for an individual quizzer, but I think the, the two scenarios that come to mind are leading a company and driving a car. Now, this may not be resonate a ton with quizzers that don't have their licenses yet, but when you're driving a car around like a slow curve, like on like the highway curves, if you look at the road right in front of your car, you end up driving in kind of a herky-jerky um, way because you're always course-correcting every foot, where if you look at a car that's in your lane but 50 yards ahead of you or, you know, 100 feet ahead of you, um, and just kind of try to keep them in the same vision as you drive, you end up driving unbelievably smoothly. Like I can't remember the first time someone told me this, and I was driving on a curve, and I'm like, I'm not moving the wheel back and forth in tiny bits every single half second. I'm just driving the slow curve, and that's because my vision was farther down to the future at a singular thing. And I think that can also be good for a company. If your vision is to become the best company in this in this industry or to make the best product of a certain type of product, it can help crystallize all of your actions to get to that point. Because then you, um, if you have something that's bold and hairy and audacious, it makes a lot of the smaller decisions very, very quick and easy. And so that can also help in quizzing depending on what sort of goal you want to set. Um, but for most, I think just focusing on those systems will be really good. And you also touched on consistency, Griffin. I think that is um, so, so important. I I also read a lot of books about like getting into shape or being healthy, and they all really say the same thing. It's not hard theoretically to get in shape or be healthier, but it requires consistency and a system um, for doing something every single day and sticking to it. Now, doing that for one day is probably very easy, but doing it every day for 100 days or for 500 days is hard, and that's why there are more people out of shape than in shape. or um, And so that's where that consistency comes in. And I also loved it when you said um, just kind of start or do something. I think this this goes along with the consistency. Um, I've heard the, the advice for writers is make the goal to write 10 words a day or 50 words a day, which if you're trying to write a novel or a thesis or something else is not going to get it done. But you find that as long as you make the time consistently – to sit down and write 10 words or 50 words, you end up doing more. So if you as a quizzer set a goal to every day read 10 verses, um, you'll probably find that you end up reading 20 verses or 50 verses, and then maybe you memorize one verse or two verses. But it's setting the consistency and practicing the self-discipline to do something every single day, even if it's small when you look at it from just one day's perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, I completely agree. And actually, a couple of things that you were talking about there sort of sparked ideas in my head. Uh, you know, you're, you were talking about driving uh, around a curve and looking forward uh, to where you're going to be. Uh, pilots, when they're landing an airplane, are told just prior to landing the airplane, look at the end of the runway. Not the, not the end of the runway that you just crossed, but the end of the runway that's way out in front of you, uh, which, you know, depending on the airport that you're landing at, that could be you know, quite a ways away from you. Uh, you know, if you're landing at SeaTac, you're talking about a runway that's a couple miles away, uh, or the end of the runway that's a couple miles away. And they say, well, look at that. Don't look at the runway that's directly in front of you. Look at the runway at the end, because then you'll actually get a better sight picture of where you are in relation to the ground and in relation to the end of the runway and just sort of where you were situated in that universe. It's sort of, and, and, and as a result of doing that, it kind of 
takes your mind off of the what are the next four inches going to be like between where my tires are now four inches above the runway and touchdown versus this weird thing of like looking at the end of the runway it's almost sort of like this weird mind trip where when you don't pay attention to the four inches you actually come down from those four inches with far more control and far better gentleness than if you actually focus on the four inches. Um, it sounds counterintuitive, but, you know, as a pilot myself, um, you know, a, a private pilot, not professional pilot, uh, I, I can certainly attest that the trick of looking at the end of the runway uh, really makes a huge difference. The other thing you were talking about in terms of consistency, have you ever heard of Seinfeld calendars? I have not. So... This might be related to Jerry Seinfeld. It may just be a rumor, but I, I've, I've heard it from multiple sources. So I have a feeling it is related to Jerry Seinfeld, but basically Seinfeld uh, is, is known for this in, in enormously good work ethic. He's always driving himself to do a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more and, and constantly working at his craft and crafting his craft and getting very, very good at it. And one of the things that he did to kind of motivate himself what, especially after his show was over where, you know, he didn't really have to do work anymore. So what, what was going to motivate him to constantly work every day? And one of the things that he did was he took a calendar, one of those big wall calendars that, you know, have the, has a lot of empty space and he, he hung it up on the wall and every day that he worked on his comedy, uh, in terms of like, like, uh, you know, writing jokes or, you know, trying to perfect a joke or working through new material, that sort of thing, he would put a big X over that particular uh, day. And if he skipped a day, then he would skip putting an X on it. And the goal was to see how long he could put X's for on the calendar. And it was absolutely irrelevant, irrelevant to him whether he spent 15 minutes or 15 hours. That didn't matter. Uh, even if he spent 15 minutes, he would still get an X for the day. And so it was motivating to him. Uh, it was a it was sort of a check-in device and a motivation device for a certain form of, cons of, of consistency, not so much the amount that you're doing every day, but that every day you're doing something. And I've taken that to heart uh, rather considerably where, you know, if I, if I feel like there's some sort of overwhelming goal that seems beyond my reach, I'll say like, well, instead of trying to write 20,000 words today, I'm going to just write today, you know, period, you know, whatever that happens to be and just see how much I can get done. Uh, so, you know, for some people, uh, you know, Stephen King, he has a, a rule that he says, you know, I'm going to write 2,000 words a day, uh, and they can be terrible words. It doesn't matter, but I'm not going to stop until I get to 2,000. For some people, that's, that's sort of his X. Uh, for others, uh, it's more just, I'm going to sit down and, and write something before I quit. Uh, and whatever that is, that's, that's sort of that minimum thing. So in terms of memorization, uh, even if it's something like, I'm going to sit down and memorize one verse today, even if it's only just one verse, that puts an X on the calendar and you get to basically see how far you can carry those runs. Makes a lot of sense. Well, let's see. Uh, let's talk a little bit about chapter references versus chapter verse references. So I have a really academic <clears throat> uh, conversation topic here. Uh, talking about chapter reference questions versus chapter verse reference questions. Um, first off, how equal are they? So... The rulebook prescribes a minimum and a maximum number of reference questions in general to ask in a quiz. Um, Griffin, would you think that half of those should be chapter references and half should be chapter verse references, at least over the course of a quiz meet or a quiz year? Um, or do you think 
having half of each is not necessarily something that should be shot for. I don't think it's necessary to I don't I don't think it's necessary to shoot for a you know a specific 50/50. Um I think generally it's good to have a mix of both and and I I try to have a mix of both in every quiz. I think a lot of it is going to be based on the material because I mean some material lends itself to more chapter referency sort of stuff, other material lends itself to more chapter verse referency stuff, so it can be weighted a little bit more one direction versus the other. I think on a chapter to chapter basis, I think when you're talking about the material for, for a full year, it probably evens itself out to some degree. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know that they, I, I don't know that I have any particular idea in mind of where I would put that 50, 50 line or 40, 60 line or, or whatever it is. That being said, they are very different question, uh, very different question types, uh, in a lot of ways. Totally. Cause you can get chapter references correct by purely knowing the material and no references. Um, but you can't do that with chapter verse references. So, um, I could have expected your thought that they shouldn't necessarily be 50-50, cause I think I agree with that too. They shouldn't necessarily be 50-50. So my net, it follows into my next question, which is, should the proportions of those questions that are asked, um, mimic or mirror the written proportions? Yes. I think, I think yes. Um, because I mean, if you don't do that, I don't know that I would make a rule for this. Um, I don't know that I would say like, we should, we should try to put this into the rule book in any particular way. But I think generally, yeah, you know, if I tend to across the entire material set of, of however many chapters it happens to be, if I am writing, say, 55% chapter reference and 45% chapter verse reference, I would sort of expect from quiz to quiz, I mean, it's going to, you know, if you take only one or two or three quizzes, it's not enough data. But if you take all of the quizzes in a meet, uh, then I would sort of expect the numbers to kind of get pretty close to that 45-55 split. So I think it makes sense that the asked proportions should be should look pretty closely um, what the written proportions are. But I'll throw a wrench in there. And that's because as I attempt to write good questions, whether or not it's chapter reference or chapter verse reference, I find that chapter reference questions outnumber chapter verse references three to one or four to one, regardless of if it's a narrative year or an epistle year. I just end up writing way more chapter only reference questions. And because of that, I don't want the asked proportions to mimic my written proportion, but I also don't want to be um, like, I try to generate my question sets as randomly as I can and not prescribe specific question types that are going into my quiz. Hmm. Very interesting. I wonder why that is. I, I tend to actually write more uh, chapter verse references than chapter references. I, I sort of catch myself every so often and say like, oh yeah, I, I need to write more. So like, you know, in, in writing questions in CBQZ, I've got the stats, you know, that, that automatically pool for me. So I know, you know, from chapter to chapter, you know, here's how many interrogatives, here's how many multiple answers, here many, here's how many chapter only references, chapter verse references and so forth. And, you know, if I start to see myself kind of fixating on a trend, I will try a little bit to kind of adjust or tack away from that trend, I'm still always going to want to govern my writing based on the material. The material trumps everything. Um, but as I'm going into the material, I might, if I start to notice that I'm seeing a lot of, say, chapter verse references, I might think to myself, remember Griffin, look for chapter reference questions, don't ignore them, you know, that sort of thing, if they're starting to get kind of small or unloved. 
but yeah, I, I, I think, I don't know, maybe my, my brain is, is wired to sort of look for chapter verse reference questions. Well, I think my brain is as well. But one thing I find when, I, when I'm writing questions is chapter reference questions are based off of almost always a chapter keyword, chapter unique word, and not a chapter key phrase um, most often. And I find that most occurrences of chapter keywords can be written into a pretty good chapter-only reference question. But uh, I, I have a, a different sort of standard when I'm writing chapter-verse reference questions because in any single verse, there's probably 5 to 20 words that you could make um, a one-word chapter-verse reference question off of, but you just don't want to because they're not good questions. And so if I'm already looking – for, for the most part, for multi-word chapter-verse reference questions, maybe I'm limiting myself there, or at least starting to change the, the approach, and um, that affects the proportions of CR versus CVR. But then also, a lot, of, a lot of CVR phrases to me are the same throughout the whole material, like the word of God. And if that's the occurrence every time, I don't write the question because it's not testing me on anything. Whereas when you're talking about chapter reference words or phrases, it's fairly rare to see the exact same phrase in multiple chapters, but not more than once within a chapter. And so most often, whenever that phrase occurs, I'm writing a chapter reference because it's um, the region of Galilee, the region of Ephesus. You know, it's like a different region. And I'm like, ah, this is a great chapter reference question. Yeah, I can see that. But yep, I totally agree that this is not something that should be in the rule book, but it kind of goes along with my big long list of encouragements for question writers because I think this is much this is a discussion of what makes a great question versus a merely valid question. This kind of goes back to something that you were talking about earlier, the, the sort of the the lily uh suggestion maybe what we need is a rule book that is written for non-quizzing people. And addendums and appendices and whatever, optional appendices that can be added over for things like Great West or uh, internationals or that sort of thing. And then in parallel to that, a book of suggestions or encouragements or something where, where something like this could go into it. Because you could say, you know, in a book of suggestions, you could say, yeah, you know, you should probably – Ask CRs versus CVRs in proportion to the, the the writing that you've done or the material that's been written, the questions that have been written based on the material. And hopefully the, the questions written off the material have been done so effectively and, and, and precisely and nicely so that those proportions of CR versus CVR actually make sense. Um, but I mean, certainly you would never include that in a rule book. But I mean, maybe we should have a, a, you know, a book of suggestions. Yeah, I think that'd be a great idea. To be clear, that's not quite what Lily was saying. She was saying, I bet you if we gave our rulebook to non-quizzing people, the, the competition that they actually implemented and the questions that they actually wrote would be very eye-opening to us who are so deep into the current rulebook. Yes. Um, but I think your suggestions still hold great because I think putting in a line about, hey, what's the why, why do we care about proportions of chapter reference versus chapter verse reference? Oh, we care because there are different question types that could potentially be prepared for by different quizzers, and we want to ensure a good experience for quizzers regardless of the type that they've prepared for, and we don't want someone to prepare for a type and have zero questions of that type asked at an entire meet. Um, we also don't want them to have 80% of the questions asked be their type because that's probably unfair to the other quizzers. You know, So if you're just going to have a, a kind of a guiding empathy for quizzers and desire um, for everyone to have a good experience and a motivating experience, could 
is something that would work really, really well in a suggestions type document and would work awfully, awfully terribly in a rules document. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it reminds me, Griffin, of um, – I'm going to draw another sports analogy, but hopefully describe it in a way that makes sense to everyone. In uh, the sport of golf, you lose your golf ball. You then have to use a new one. And in the old rule book, there was a very specific way that you had to drop your new golf ball into play. You had to have your arm directly out from your body um, at a 90-degree angle, and you had to re- hold it with like three fingers and let the fingers go without um, forcing the ball towards the ground at all and all this stuff. Well, in the recent rewrite, they said, you can drop the ball however you want. You just can't do it in a way that influences the lie you get or where the ball ends up. And so they said, we're going to scrap all of this very specific that probably was objective in black and white. But they said, you know what? It's kind of it's hostile and inaccessible to the full range of golfers that we have written this rule book for. If we write something that just conveys the intent of what we want to happen, it will work great in the biggest stage of golfing, and it would work even better at the recreational stage of golfing. And I think that there's a place for that sort of mentality in a rule book as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I completely agree. So before we move on from the CRCVR you know, versus conversation. One quick idea here. Would you ever want to see hypothetically a rule or a suggestion? I don't know, but, but probably this would have to be a rule. Would you ever want to see those two split in terms of minimum maximum requirements per quiz? Not really, because I think, I mean, we already have what? One, two, three, four, five, five or six question types. And I think we can get more specific with question types if, and, it would have some value, but I think it would be a net loss because of the added complication and tracking of minimums and mac- maximums. I knew it. I know it was a big thing before computers could make sure that the minimums and maximums were hit perfectly. But when I was a quizzer, it seemed like it happened once every couple meets that a quiz finished and was did not hit the minimums or maximums and had to be redone completely. Yeah. Um, which, which is not, you know, and I think it would. That sort of thing would be easier to have happen if you keep splitting question types. And I really – I think CR and CVR are different, but I don't think they're different enough. Like I was fully in favor of saying MA reference questions do not count as multiple answers because I think they could not be more different. But I think CRs and CVRs have a good deal of overlap because knowing the material by reference totally helps you when it comes to chapter reference questions, even if – um, it helps you to a much less extent than it does on chapter verse reference questions. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, with that, we should uh, probably wrap things up. So I will remind everyone yet again, of course, that if you want to send uh, feedback or questions or comments or concerns or theology questions or CBQZ questions or QuizMe questions or Quizmaster questions or any sort of you know related questions, send your emails to IQ at cbqz.org follow us on twitter at inside quizzing and uh, scott do you have anything else to add no i don't that's it all right thanks everybody see you see you next week see you later <laughs>